Welcome back, dear listeners, to season six of the Dish with Dina podcast. I cannot believe it's been three years since I started this podcast, and we've been moving along pretty regularly with sort of weekly episodes, some breaks in between seasons, and quality content that I hope brings you joy. We're kicking off season six with Steve Walker, who was introduced to me by Sonia Ahuja, who actually kicked off season two in episode 15 if you want to go back through the archives and check that out. For today, Steve and I dish about disruptive innovations in education, how fear and anxiety can hold us back from taking steps in our personal and professional development and leading from a place of love. Steve is a life coach and an education consultant with over two decades of experience in both He also teaches meditation and practices yoga daily. He's earned two black belts in martial arts and is passionate about travel, social justice, and being a dad. You can learn more about Steve and follow him on his social media platforms through the links in this episode. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Steve Walker, to the Dish with Dina podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of, I'm sure, what is a very busy day to spend with me, and I'm really happy to get to know you a little bit better. How are things going on in your neck of the woods here? Well, thanks, Dean. It's great to be here, and I really appreciate the invitation, and I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, it's a little bit of a momentous day for me. I'm, you know, uh, ending my 25-year career as a teacher. Today was the last day of classes. As a teacher myself, congratulations to you for sticking it out for 25 years. <laughs> I'm excited to learn more about this, but first I want to share yeah. with our listeners, do you remember, recall how we came to learn about each other, how we were introduced? Will you share with them how we know each other? Yeah, we have a mutual friend, Sonia, who uh, raved about you and said, oh my gosh, you'd be such a great guest for the podcast. And uh, and and connected us, which was great. And then as soon as I listened to a couple of the episodes, I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, this is this would be a great place to be in a great conversation. So I love uh, being connected to like minded people for any listeners out there. Uh, we're talking about Sonia Ahuja. She um, did the podcast episode for me on season two, episode 15, I think it was. So she was one of the first people in the beginning stages. That's and now, great. Yeah. Now we're we're sitting here scheduling and interviewing what is essentially going to be season six or even seven. Wow. I know. Crazy how time flies. Thank you. Thank That's you. awesome. So Steve, most of the conversation in the beginning part of our discussion takes place around your earliest memories and related around food, nutrition, traditions, culture. Will you share a little bit with us about what earliest childhood memories you have related around food, whether it was home, holidays, anything that comes to mind, recipes, family dynamics, etc. Yeah, so uh so my mother was not a great cook. And so most of my memories about like meals were, you know, TV dinners sitting in front of the table or the in front of the TV, you know, on a TV dinner stand, whatever they call them. And um or or something that was pretty bland. Uh I always felt like my dad was a better cook than my mom, but he rarely cooked. You know, he barbecue sometimes but you know he was he loved fishing and so if he caught or we caught some fish then there'd be a great feast and and I was like wow he's really good like why doesn't he cook more (laughs) so there's that 
the positive other than seafood sometimes was um, I would say Thanksgiving is huge in my family and the recipes for like, you know, stuffing and corn casserole and all that have been passed down. And, and my cousins and I, you know, we all follow the same recipes and we, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for my kids. Um, so that's been probably the most positive that my grandmother's pies were pretty darn fantastic. Um, the other, I think legacy of my childhood it, with food is probably my, my staples were ring dings, devil dogs, and pop tarts. I, I, my mother allowed me to create, or maybe even encouraged me to create the worst habits and, and sugar addiction. I mean, in, in all seriousness, it's, it, it's been something I've battled with my whole life. There are so many things that you spoke about just now that reminded me of my own childhood. My mom was a decent cook. I mean, she did well in the kitchen. She tried new recipes. My dad was a little bit particular with flavors and things. So, you know, she didn't venture out in any kind of fun direction. However, my father also was big on the barbecuing and going fishing. Some of my earliest memories when they had a shore house, which I'm devastated to share that we don't own anymore. Oh. They, I know they got rid of it in like a million years ago for whatever reason. And then I was like, you could have just handed it down to us. Oh, oh that's know. brutal. And they used to take the, they had a little boat. They would take it on the lagoon. He would go crabbing. We would come back to the shore mm. house and we had some other family members and friends of families that we would have pasta dinners with the fresh fish. So I, that you just brought back so many memories for me. I'm still into fish, not so much in barbecuing uh, meat, but my father was also, you know, a good cook, but didn't necessarily cook. Do you think, is it fair to assume for both of us, maybe it was more of a traditional role for our moms to be the ones in the kitchen or was that not the case necessarily with your family? Yeah, I think, it, I think it was mostly that. I yeah. think also my dad always worked a lot, a lot. He never made much money. Uh, a lot of times was working two or three jobs. So part of it, I think was also that he was exhausted uh, and maybe depressed. Um, so I think that was part of it, but I think for the most part, yeah, it was traditional gender roles without a doubt. But you're right in maybe not outwardly acknowledging low energy, mental health care that oh. was being neglected. I mean, that wasn't the time nobody really supported that. And we relied heavily, I think on our father figures to just suck it up and move forward. Another thing that you mentioned too, you know, this comes up a lot in the episodes and some of the guests share this as well, because I do have a lot of other dietitian guests like myself, I'm a registered dietitian, but some people are not in the health and wellness roles at all, or they're in different professions, or some are playing a different role within the health and wellness world. And this term of being addicted to certain foods. So there's some conflicting information out there about the actual like research supporting mm. all of that, whether it does or does not mess with your brain, whether it's like pleasure centers. But I know that those of us and myself included in there, I had a very sweet tooth. So I've shared in past episodes, my parents didn't have a lot of stuff on hand. I would sneak off to my friend's house and just devour wow. their snack cabinet. But it really becomes a thing that all of a sudden you start I guess, comparing other flavors with the thing that brings you most joy or that you're most mm -hmm. sensitive to and things just aren't sweet enough. Can you share with us a little bit how and if, and did you ever break that habit or do you still have a relationship with the sweet treats that you feel like you need to have a little bit more mindfulness or control over? Oh yeah. I still struggle with it. Um, I've, I've had times where it was better 
I think particularly, um, you know, if I'm really working out, exercising a lot, uh, um, then I crave it less and I tend to crave protein more um, and just healthier stuff in general, fruits and veggies. I still do a lot of fruits and veggies anyways, but it's really that like, um, you know, I'd say I go through these time periods where the cravings are just, you know, they feel irresistible, certainly. And then, you know, like for a lot of people, it's situational, right? These connections get wired. And so if I'm at my cousin's up in Boston and her husband is maybe the biggest chocolate chocoholic I've ever known. Uh, my price, my rent for going to visit them is brownies. Uh, I have to make brownies for them. And um, so like when I'm up there, it, it it's horrendous. Like I can't, it's everywhere and I can't resist it or it feels like I can't. Um, but I'd say at home, I, I'm better at home, but it's certain situations and places that it's worse. I wanted to share in one of a previous interview that I had done, so we were talking about the word comfort foods, right? The fact that mm. it brings you comfort, whether it's a bowl of mashed potatoes or a pint of ice cream. Yeah. And one of the guests had mentioned that at the time, I think her family was going through a divorce of some sort. And so the role that chocolate or sugar played was to truly sweeten the dysfunction mm. that was happening there. There was no love being shared. And that yeah. really resonated with me. I never thought maybe am I filling some sort of void of sweetness or comfort needs by having this? Or do I just like chocolate and sugary treats? Who's to say? Because we didn't go to therapy we're back both. then. <laughs> or both, we're both. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. you mentioned just now the brownies thing. So can you share with me too, when you were younger, did you play a role at all in the kitchen developing recipes or doing any hands-on cooking with your mom or outside or, you know, whenever you wanted to step in and try something, did you, were you able to step in and play that role as well? Or did you end up learning about how to cook for yourself and make things like this the in the later years? As a kid, for the most part, no, the one exception was we moved a lot when I was a kid and we lived at one point for about three years in Florida when I was in middle school. And uh, it was probably the worst time of my childhood and, and for my family at the time in many, many ways. And But for some reason, my dad kind of came out of his fog if you will. I mean, he, he really did, you know, I think suffer from depression, undiagnosed a lot, PTSD from World War II, I think pretty badly. Um, but for probably like, I don't know, three to six months, he came out of it a little bit and, and wanted to, wanted to make pies with me following his mom's recipes. And so we, you know, we called, my grandmother and said, Hey, can you send us a recipe? And so she sent it reluctantly. She was so guarded about the family secret recipes. Right. And, um, and we tried for, I don't know, three to six months, we tried making a lot of pies and whatever, could not get the crust down, could not get the crust down. There was all the speculation. Is this about the humidity in Florida or is it the water? You know? But for whatever reason, we couldn't. And then that was, that was it. Uh, the rest of it was as an adult trying to figure out how to do stuff. Was your grandma secretly keeping away some ingredients in there purposely so that it didn't come out like hers? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at all. 
<laughs> she's like i'm not giving away my secrets so yeah. Steve, go through then when you are becoming an adult and having more independence and so on what were some of the things that you were more drawn drawn to as far as meals being that you did move around and i know from reading some of the information that you sent me you did end up traveling quite a lot too so did you open up your palate to different cultural experiences and flavors and cuisines yeah i mean i did a little bit in college and grad school, um, just because I had friends who were like, hey, you know, we're in Washington, let's go to the Afghan restaurant. And I was like, the what? Like, what kind of food is that going to be? And then I went, I was like, well, this is great. And, uh, you know, Ethiopian restaurant in Adams Morgan in, in DC. And I was like, whoa. And, and then went there and it was like, this is fantastic, right? Um, but then I joined the Foreign Service. And, you know, first tour tour was Monterey, Mexico. And the funny thing is my whole life, I have not liked mushrooms, onions, and peppers. I go to Mexico, everything's onions and peppers. And, uh, and, and I didn't like guacamole at the time. And then you get to, it's like, that's on. So for those two years though, I mean, I, I loved what I ate. I mean, I, I, it was weird. I mean, in the sense that I think it forced me to almost like convince myself or brainwash myself that I like this stuff. And then I liked it. And uh, I'd say guacamole kind of after I left Mexico, I didn't eat much of it for a little bit, but then it's come back into my life and I love avocados now a lot. Um, but that was, that was, I think the real turning point where I was in this culture where, you know, the core ingredients were the things that I learned to hate growing up. Um, and I still don't love having like big chunks of those things in food, but, um, but that was, that was a real game changer for me. And then I was off to the races. Like I, I'm a very adventurous person. I love trying different cuisines. Um, I get bored pretty easily if I'm in an area that doesn't have a lot of really interesting options. So do you currently cook for yourself? And if so, what are some of your go-to favorite meals? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I would say the last couple of years with the pandemic, I stopped putting in much effort in the kitchen. And I, I don't know why. Part of it was, I think living alone has always, it's always been less interesting cooking for myself because if, if I'm on my own, like I want to go probably a little bit more on the healthy side. I don't bring you know, I'm, I'm pretty pescatarian, uh, at home. And so, uh, you know, and, and I get home from work and I'm kind of tired and I go to bed early cause I'm a teacher and I get up at five. And so it just leads me to make less effort. I'm actually really looking forward to in this next phase where I'm going to be focusing on my business and moving to Boston. I'm actually focused on like, Oh, I can't, for some reason, I'm like really dying to get back in the kitchen. And, um, but I tend to I tend to do a lot around um, probably like pasta dishes and seafood, but I eat a lot less pasta in general these days. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where I go once I'm in my new place. We've often spoken about in my profession and a lot of the things that I do in my classroom as well, because I used to teach or I kind of guess I still do, but currently at the time of this recording, I'm not teaching it in this semester, food society and health. So we've taken a virtual mm. tour around the globe 
and I would teach the lecture and another teacher would go into the culinary part of it and do the uh, whatever the representative meals were in the kitchen. So we have a, a school has our a kitchen in one of the floors and the students would get hands-on learning of all the different flavors and things that go with each other. But then they also had to keep in, into mind the fact that, you know, we're working in the nutrition and dietetics field. So what are some things we might have to modify from these things? So was it flavor changes? If we couldn't add salt, could we add some other seasonings? If we had to work on portions or the methods of cooking, but still honoring traditional food ways from people from around the globe, that was the whole point of it too, is that we're not forcing other kind of like American foods on people from around the world because you want to honor the tradition. So I love what you were saying too about you're you're excited to get back in to the kitchen and play around with different things and maybe do you have the proper equipment and things on hand steve or do you need to go purchase like you know your spice rack and all of your chef's knives and whatever else is going to be coming with you into boston i think i'm mostly okay with that but i was actually i was thinking as i start packing i'm like that's one of the things i want to do is you know figure out like okay what are the things that are old and need, need to be replaced what are the things I've got and I haven't been using? And oh, like, you know, a sous vide. I've got a sous vide. And a, when I've used it, it's been fantastic. I mean, really like the salmon comes out perfect every time. Uh, but I haven't been using it that much. Um, so, yeah. So I'm going to do a little bit of, a, a, you know, take inventory and figure out what I want to either upgrade or or need to get that I don't have. But I'm, I'm in pretty good shape with that. Um, you know, the other thing I was just thinking about, though, I just made this connection. It's so interesting putting less effort into the cooking the last couple of years, this predates it. But several years back, I, this is pre COVID. So it's not COVID related. I lost a lot of the, my um, sense of smell. I had used nasal spray that you use for colds and whatever. And, and it had in, in fact, been taken off the market for a while because it was uh, hurting people's sense of smell. And and it just made me wonder, I wonder if that's part of it, that because in cooking, like, you know, you do so much, you know, playing off of taste and smell, which are obviously connected. Um, like, I wonder if that's part of it, that part of my motivation or confidence, maybe part of it uh, has waned with my sense of smell. I wonder. That is a very good observation. We eat with our eyes, a lot of people say, but we also eat with our olfactory senses. Yeah. And especially in certain populations, but also people who have had certain conditions, if you lose that, it feels like, where's the joy? Like I can see yeah. it, but I can't smell it. And that might also affect your taste buds too, perhaps. Yeah. So keep us posted on yeah. your next venture. And if you're dealing with different kinds of flavor profiles, if you're able to accommodate any of the things that you think you might've lost. Yeah. So Steve, let's move forward in the direction of where things have led you now. Is anything mm. that you had dealt with, whether it was food, nutrition, lifestyle related things in the past, how has that brought you to the journey that you are now? And I guess we can talk a little bit too about the transition from being a teacher into your new business. But even as a teacher, were there any things in there too that you felt you kind of drew or were influenced by some of the things that you had gone through as a child? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, I'm adopted. And so uh, my core, like fear is abandonment. And yet I have chosen repeated careers where that button's going to get pushed all the time. You know, I went into the Foreign Service with the State Department for eight years and we moved, you know, jobs every two years. You literally picked up and left. And in the intervening year, half the people you were working with left. 
And then I quit and I was an activist for five years. So that was by its nature going to be a temporary thing. And then I went into teaching where every year these kids that I love and form these close bonds with, they leave. Uh, so, so in some ways, like I took that baggage, you know, from being adopted with me and, and maybe part of it is, you know, that's what's familiar. And so in some ways it ironically feels safe or maybe that's a paradox, but, um, uh, I, I do think though, that the moving a lot that I talked about earlier as a kid, I think it made the foreign service feel kind of like a natural fit, but I also think it, it made me really resilient to change and to embrace change and gave me courage to always be open to a new adventure, to be excited about change. When there's a crisis, I'm the guy you want. Like a, that's when I'm at my best. I get really calm and I, and kind of in the moment. And, um, and, and then I think the other thing that probably had a huge impact on me when I was younger was as a teenager, I got into the martial arts and for about 20 years or so, I was pretty active and taught and learned a lot of different martial arts. And that I think did a couple of things for me. One is it changed my relationship with my body, you know, just so much more attuned to it and, um, you know, trying to take care of it and finding, you know, comfort and joy in movement and, um, and in, and in it being a social thing that, that, um, the martial arts for me was always a collaborative thing. And so, and that's, teaching the martial arts is also what led me eventually to go into teaching as a profession. And, and the other thing was, um, uh, meditation that it, it turned me on to meditation. And so the impact that's had on my life has just been profound. And part of it is trying to be more mindful in every aspect of life, whether it's, you know, how you manage your stress or eating or, relationships or work or anything. So I'd say that that was a huge difference maker. Yeah. And that speaks almost to the juxtaposition, I guess, if I'm using the word correctly, of what you were mentioning with the resilience to change, but yet still mm. being able to be in the moment of something. So not feeling like perhaps disconnected from things that are happening around you, but as being a part of that and being able to move through whatever's yeah. going on. Yeah. And so I want to go back for a second because I'm, I'm interested and curious about your career as a teacher. What levels did you teach? What subject matter did yeah. you teach? So I've been a high school social studies teacher for almost 25 years. And um, I started out teaching European history and U.S. history. And then a couple of years in, I created... Over the summer, I created a new course on foreign policy because I'd had this experience being a diplomat, et cetera. And, um, and a few days into the course, 9-11 happened. And so I came in the next day and said to the kids, I'm throwing that out the window, uh, the whole course. You tell me what you need to learn and how you want to learn it. And that changed my teaching practice. I went from being a storyteller and a test giver and you know essay giver to being a guide, a coach, a facilitator of kids exploring and becoming researchers and thinkers and collaborators. And, and it's been wonderful ever since. And, um, and then the big change after that was 
in 2006, I joined the Life School. Life is an acronym for learning interdependently from experience. And it's a lab school. So our, our mandate, our mission is in part to try new ways of teaching and learning to figure out what best practices are to be innovative. And I joined the Life School, which is for 55 juniors and seniors uh, in 2006. And being a part of this program has changed my life, not just my teaching profession, but my life. It's made me a better person, a better dad, a better friend. Um, and, and the relationships that, that we've had with kids, the difference you get to make in people's lives. And what I've learned about being socially and emotionally intelligent, because to teach the kids, I had to find out how to do that myself, um, has really been unbelievable. I'm an extraordinary experience. This is really fascinating to me. So just out of curiosity, as the high school teacher, did you go through and have a degree in educational studies or or did you do an alternate route in that so, sense? So when I went to teaching, I already had a master's in international affairs. So all I needed were the 23 credits in education and the student teaching and take the exams, whatever. So I did that over the course of a year while subbing during the day. And then eventually during that year, got hired temporarily as a teacher and and then was off to the races. I ask this because with all due respect to my group of adjunct professors and adjunct professors, maybe in general, we get plucked out of whatever our profession is mm. and not always taught how to teach. Yeah. You at least had some background and maybe observing and, you know, yeah, yeah. looking at how that dynamic goes. And obviously, while 9-11 was the the crux that turned that made the change the catalyst that made that change for you of being more of an engager versus you know speaking at people and speaking yep. with people um not a lot of teachers do stuff like that and i've often talked to my students about this too you know when they work with me i have what we call like a flipped classroom i want them to read up on the stuff the material the textbook the chapters the material whatever the resources that i have posted for them right. most of the stuff these days now is online unfortunately and then when they come to class when they join me or they log in remotely to school to class that the whole point of our conversation is to have interactive discussion. I want to get them to critically think about things. I want to have them share lived experiences. It is so much fun doing yeah. that because it feels like a mutually beneficial relationship. I'm not just shoving things in their faces and being, you know, like, remember, memorize this for your test. It's about being able to apply that stuff. And so Steve, would you speak a little bit more about that too? When sure. you're, when you made that switch, did you start noticing that your students too felt like they were more well-rounded? They appreciated things. They were able to have a better frame of reference. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. and even I was fortunate in that when I was going through the education um, program at Pace University to go into teaching, I had some great professors who helped me learn the research and the philosophy and around the pedagogy of student-centered learning and project-based learning and all that. And I had a great cooperating teacher who mentored me when I was a student teacher and could connect the dots between theory and practice. That was awesome. I, I got to my full-time job as a high school teacher though, and I did a lot of that stuff, but I still mostly defaulted to the storytelling mode the direct instruction, because there's a lot of pressure and expectation around me from my colleagues to do that. And I was good at it. And so you get that positive feedback from kids like, oh, yeah, you're great. We love you. Favorite teacher, whatever. But 
like they're not actually learning most of it. They're not remembering most of it. And so when I made that really radical shift in 2001, what happened was I saw that negotiating everything with the kids and making them at the center, they worked so much harder than I would have ever asked them to work. And they stopped caring about grades. And I teach in a high school where grades and college admissions are everything. And the idea that you could have 28 kids not ask about their grades for an entire quarter. I mean, I had one kid at the end of the quarter. He's like, uh, are we getting graded on anything here? And another kid goes, it's more like a vibe. It's okay. Trust it's going to be okay. This guy's watching everything that we're doing. He's seeing what we can do. He's evaluating our skills. It's And it's going to be okay. And yeah, it was it was great. Um, we figured it all out together. And, we're, and we ended up figuring out together, like, so how are we going to grade all this? And what makes sense? And what should the rubrics be and all that? And again, their standards were so much higher than mine would have been because they owned it. It mattered deeply to them. And that's the crime, right, in education that still, for the most part, teachers make themselves the center of, of the experience in the classroom. And it's about memorizing and regurgitating. And it, it just doesn't work for anybody. It looks like it works for some kids because some kids have a good memory and they'll memorize and they're good test, test takers. But they're not actually learning what they need to learn and how they need to learn it. And you're going to have a bell curve. You know, you figure out how to get your bell curve grade wise. And so everybody goes home thinking that they're a great teacher. And sorry, but you're not. You know, the real key is the kids have to own it and the kids need to be at the center of it. And particularly now, you look at like ChatGPT and, and AI, that is going to be the ultimate disruptive force because that is going to make all this you know, direct instruction and memorization irrelevant. And kids are going to have to learn how to synthesize, how to really think creatively, problem solve, collaborate. Um, they're going to, we're going to have to figure out like, what can a human bring to the table that artificial intelligence can't at least not yet. And they're going to have to learn how to be really flexible and adaptable because jobs are going to come and go. I think that speaks to what they're used to, right? Like you said before, yeah. with just being grades focused and not actually being able to take tactile information and then implement yep. it in, yep. in the world, right? Practice. And so this is an innovative approach <laughs> that we're taking. I, I recognize obviously college learning and college students are much different than high school environment and high school students but the end result is still the same we are hopefully preparing yeah. them to go off into the workforce and or just be generally good humans at some point like have a decent experience and i was fortunate as well to uh be offered some workshops to help me become an effective teacher and especially when we transitioned pretty much fully remotely in, in 2020 we had no choice at that point mm. to be off campus we a lot of teachers were very very paralyzed with fear of how are we going to make this work because I'm an instructor and I like pointing at the blackboard and writing things on the wall and you know going through my slides etc and it was really up to us to make it a, a cohesive comprehensive setting for the students and it took some learning on both of our ends. There was a learning curve on both of our ends, obviously. But I really enjoyed how it's turned out. I'm okay with allowing them to 
come to class in person or work remotely, but I still love the synchronous approach mm. because I, I still want to be a part of the discussion, even if I'm looking at 20 blank screens, which is usually the case, unfortunately. And so what you mentioned too about chat GPT and, and AI, I really agree with you too. I mean, I'm even using some of that in what I do with captioning things, you know, or blog sure. post writing. Like I just, I have so much content I'm always trying to create and that helps me fine tune things, but I still go in and have the critical eye for it. And that's where I hope that people who are now getting born into this era are not going to solely use that for everything and not realize like, oh, I don't know how to speak like, you know, human to human and have that interaction yeah. and, and critically analyze things and get the nuance of stuff too, right? Those right live human things. Uh, I actually just posted something on LinkedIn today about that. I like being a human educator. Like I like being in front of everybody and not relying so much on all of the internet stuff that's out there, even before chat GPT, right? Just Googling right. things like working yeah. with clients of mine who can, I can Google my illness and I'm well, yeah, but it would be good. If, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be good if you spoke with a professional or a specialist right. just to make sure you're doing this right. So, Steve, let's now venture into current affairs. So what right. brought you to where you are now? Tell us a little bit about this new change and this new chapter that you're going into. Yeah, so I'm really excited. Uh, I mean, it's been great. Look, being a teacher has been great. And for the last eight years, I've been director of the life school. And that's just been a joy and so meaningful. But I, I had this increasing feeling like there's an, you know, my, the next chapter is coming. Like, what is it? And uh, maybe it's partly my nomadic nature that was looking for the next adventure. But, um, you know, and, and I trusted that it would manifest itself if I kind of kept focused on what really matters to me and what's meaningful and purposeful and all that. And last summer, I had this epiphany while I was in Scotland that I needed to set up a life coaching business that um, probably the most meaningful part of my current job has been that work, helping kids figure out who they are and who they're trying to become, help them manage relationships, transitions, et cetera. And it, it, I mean, as soon as I thought, I was like, of course, like, you know, and I've done it off and on on the side here and there, but the idea of like, no, that, that, that's something I need to be doing more regularly and with a, with a clientele that's more than just the high school kids. So I came back and very quickly, the name came to me, Integrity and Joy. And I looked up, you know, is it taken as a company? Is it anywhere on social media? And the answer was no to all of the above. So I grabbed it and set up the website, you know, designed the website, uh, you know, put up a pretty rudimentary one initially and got the social media stuff set up. And, um, and I thought, well, how am I going to get the word out that I'm doing this? And so I said, well, you know, social media, I'll, you know, I'll put up some videos, you know, little, give people little snippets of like, here's the kind of stuff I'm going to be talking about with people. And, and that'll get the word out. And, and if it helps, if there's one person that I don't already know who goes, Oh, that was great. I like that. That that was helpful. Mission accomplished. Like seriously, I thought like one person. And the videos on Instagram are now getting between 13 and 23,000 views. And I and I like and I'm not putting a lot of effort into it yet. And I was like, "Whoa." Like I kind of wasn't expecting that. And 
And that led to me getting clients, not just people that I knew or who were referred to me by people I knew, but I've got clients in different parts of the world. And it, that was a bit of a shock to me. And it still is. But what it told me was, oh, yeah, this is the thing. This is the next adventure. And it was clear to me that um, that I needed to be doing this. And I'm going to also do some education consulting as I've done here and there in the past. And, and uh, because I, I feel like I've learned a lot through the work in the life school that, that could help other people. And I, I'm pretty good at, you know, sort of executive coaching and helping people figure out how to create change and how, you know, disruptive innovation can really change things, whether it's at the micro level or the big macro level. But um, those two pieces, I think will give me a lot of interesting challenges and opportunities and to still feel like I'm making a difference because that's kind of what's always driven me and to, to learn more myself as I go too. You spoke a lot. Well, or I should say I gathered a lot from what you just said on a few things, the epiphany or that aha moment. I don't think, mm. I think a few things. I think sometimes people aren't listening or aware when things like that happen. That's the first thing. Like, you know, pay yeah. attention to your surroundings, listen to the thoughts in your head sometimes process all that. And the second thing is fearlessness. This has come up in some of my past yeah. interviews as well, where, right, we've, you're probably aware of the limiting belief and the abundance mindset of, yeah. well, I want to, but I can't, or it's, I, you know, I'm too old or too whatever, or too set in this or not enough of something where I'm afraid to venture. And you are living proof. I'm also living proof because I shared this before as well, you know, not to be corny, if you build it, they will come. And yeah. I really believe that wholeheartedly. So the fact that you were tied to a career that brought you a lot of joy, happiness, and also you were able to give back so much in there too. To let go of that, obviously, must and it just happened recently. So maybe you're still processing the emotions around that too. But you allow the opportunity to open up for you these this other career that you're going into, and you're also bringing with it other things that are affiliated, right? So we all have something that guides us, some knowledge, skill, things. As you were saying before, you're kind of like the go-to person in emergency situations. I want people who are listening to this to recognize and pay attention when they hear things like, you're so good at this, or you should start whatever, or you know, whatever these little things that come up, just pay attention and collect that and, and process it. Maybe there is something else that would be bringing you more joy and happiness. And so that brings me to my question about integrity and joy. There are so many words that mm. are related to things like values and roles and emotions what made you land on integrity and joy i'd say uh a couple of things one is integrity has always well since i was you know you know in my 20s and 30s um has always been kind of a defining value for me and part of it was you know my work in the foreign service i kept coming up against policies that challenged my values and in the end, I, I quit publicly to protest our policies toward the genocide in Bosnia. And, and, and that was sort of the ultimate act of integrity in that, in that domain. And, and I realized that, that it, it was unbelievably powerful. It, like, it's great uh, going to bed at night and looking yourself in the mirror as you're brushing your teeth and knowing I lived with integrity today. Uh, it reduces stress. You don't have to worry about like there can be repercussions for you doing something immoral or unethical or dishonest, or whatever. If you try to live with integrity, 
if you're gonna sleep pretty well. Um, it, it also, it, it feels like it's your most valued possession. And, but once you lose it, it's hard to get it back. So it, I, I realized the centrality of it in that way. And, and then there's also the kind of um, Brene Brown philosophy, right? That, um, that the key to having a good life and to having real, meaningful, authentic relationships is to be vulnerable and courageous, to put your authentic self out there so that people can hopefully love the real you. Uh, and so what does that mean? Well, being your authentic self, I think, means having real clarity about who you are, what you believe in, and what your values are, and trying to live consistent with those things every day. And if you do that, then that's who your authentic self is. And so to me, that's that that's essential. And and through that, you get to experience true love, whether it's any kind of love you're talking about, whether it's friendship or romantic or anything. And that's why we're here. Like, I mean, it's going to sound really trite, but the Beatles were right. All you need is love. I mean, we are here to, to not just love and be loved, but Ram Das had this great quote that, that we're here to be love. And I actually have a t-shirt that I wear on all of our retreats at school, be love. That's what we are here to be loving energy, period, full stop. And the path to that is figuring out who you are and who you're trying to be, what you believe in and what your values are and living consistent with them every day, having integrity. And if you have integrity with your values and with who you really think you are and want to be, then you can be love and you'll be surrounded by love, whether you're alone or with a ton of different people. And that, that to me is, is why we're here. And I recognize that figuring out who we are and also being open to that, we can change. There might be ebbs and yeah. flows as we enter into constant. different lives. Right. Constant. constant. And that sometimes is where people I think, but up against that consistency. So, you know, should I quit my job? Should I leave this relationship? Should I, change my habits in life and then be consistent with that in order to really keep honing in on who their true authentic self is. Could you speak a little bit about consistency? Cause that plays a yeah. role in implementing where you and I both try to get people from point A to point B and, you know, supporting their needs along the way. And then I have a follow-up question to that too. So can you speak a little bit about encouraging people to maybe be patient with being consistent with allowing them to make mistakes along the way? What are your thoughts on consistency? I think a couple of things. One is that we're often consistent in ways we shouldn't be and inconsistent in ways we shouldn't be. I think that we cling to what's familiar and let fear and anxiety get in the way of embracing change when change is healthy and when it is going to force us to stretch ourselves and be in our discomfort zone and and like you were talking about earlier to to recognize the omens along the way and and see that there's a new path in front of us that we should be taking or that we could take and so we cling to consistency in that sense in a really unhealthy way it's and but that's just being driven by fear and anxiety we should not have decisions in our lives be driven by fear or anxiety and and i think we we you know, then miss out on the opportunity to really embrace healthy change and new adventures and new people. And the idea that 
that the consistency should come from, I'm going to live consistent with my values and principles and beliefs. And, and, you know, as a result of that, we often are inconsistent with our integrity. We're inconsistent with our values and beliefs. We become people pleasers. We're so afraid of change. We're so afraid of people not liking us, of people judging us or abandoning us that we abandon who we actually are. We put on masks, we play roles, we violate our core values. And, and that's a real path to disaster, right? And we're gonna lose the path to love. We're gonna lose the path to growth. And we're gonna lose our authenticity. We're gonna listen to the voice of fear instead of listening to our authentic voice. What you said just now is reminding me too that in some of my past conversations with some people I've worked with and myself included too, like I've gone through some processes of, you know, going from point A to point B and some of the changes that I've made in my life. And I realized this, this might come from a little bit of a place of privilege as well, that there's not motivation or inspiration. Like I don't like saying I need to be motivated today or I'm following something to be inspired by. It's more of a commitment to myself. Mm -hmm. So having gone through my own physical and mental health issues, I can't wait around to be motivated by anything or anybody. <laughs> I have to like in, ingrain it in my schedule. Like this is a non-negotiable commitment that I've made to myself to follow along these particular habits that are going to support me. Because once I put myself on the back burner and other things become priority, I lose myself. I start falling yeah. by the wayside. I become sick or my mental health deteriorates. And then I'm no good to anybody in that sense. And I don't want to live a life of regret and resentment because I'm the one right now in control as best as I can be in control of some things. So I really appreciate what you just mentioned about that too. And what you talked about too, you know, I brought up the word fearlessness and you mentioned living in fear. So it was reminding me, because I'm sure we've all had somebody like this who's called themselves a leader or a manager and use boot camp type of tactics or yeah are really intimidating in some way. And I think you mentioned this somewhere in maybe your website some, someplace too, if I'm not mistaken. I don't love that that yeah. role. I don't, I like being supportive and nurturing in whatever I'm doing to help people in any of my relationships. I don't like the fear or forcing somebody to do something like whether it's gaining, you know, my respect, I, I need to earn somebody's respect. What are your thoughts about tactics like that? Do you think that people tend to go more towards the, you know, whip me into shape and yell at me for not doing something because it's rooted in fear and they're afraid to be consistent with the change that they need to be in control of. So they're allowing someone else to control it. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think there's also, um, certainly my generation grew up with that as the dominant model for leading. So, you know, I was brought up to think that the football coaches when I was in eighth grade terrorizing us that that was good it was going to make men out of us and it was going to build character and and in the state department you know most of my bosses not all but but most were intimidators uh a couple were yellers they were known for like screaming at you all the time and i was always like why why are they doing that it seems like such a bully move and born out of such insecurity and the reality is that, and I think what you may be referring to, I, I did a video recently where I was talking about people need to feel safe. It's one of those core needs that we have. And if we don't feel safe, then 
we are living in fear and we're not going to be creative, good problem solvers, good collaborators, right? Safety is a core requirement for all of those things. So if you want the people who work with and for you to perform at their optimal level or capacity, you want them first and foremost to feel safe. And then there's the whole thing. I don't know if you've ever come across um, Google's project, Aristotle. Google, maybe 10 years ago, wanted to figure out what's the key to an effective team? Because they have so many teams at Google, everything's done in teams. And they want to figure out what it is. And so they hired, they, they put together this team, Project Aristotle team. And they first scoured all of the like academic research on collaboration to see like, what's the common thread? And they found none. And they're like, well, that's weird. So then they studied internally at Google, like what, what do we think makes for effective teams here? And what they discovered, and then actually saw roots of it in some of the academic stuff I, when they went back to it, was that the teams who knew each other as people and cared about each other as people were the most effective teams. And why? Because you feel safe, right? And you care about each other also. So you, therefore, if you need to pick up the slack for somebody in a project, you're gonna pick up the slack because their kid's sick or their spouse just lost their job and there's lots of stress at home, whatever. So like that just spoke even more to the idea that, yeah, we need to feel connected to each other. We need to feel safe. We need to care about and love each other. And when we do that, then we work better together and we produce better and we're more creative and better at problem solving. That is 100% true. And you just reminded me also, and trust me when I say I know nothing about sports when I reference this, but <laughs> I think that's why shows like Ted Lasso are so yeah. big because there's that loving core. Yeah. And I even live by a quote by John Wooden, the, uh, I mean, he's passed away since, but he's the basketball coach right. who focused on that teamwork, co collaborative camaraderie and supported people and were, was not taking the tactic of, you know, yelling at the players and, um, you know, this is disappointing. Like it was always positive mindset. And I know that there's like a woo-woo factor that I, 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 I want to acknowledge that, but I also want to tell everybody like, shut up because it's not okay to have an abrasive tone if you want somebody to provide you with an end product in some way that's going to be in a win-win environment, right? You have right. to be able, and that's also Stephen Covey coming into mind. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there's that. You, ha you have, it, otherwise you're walking away and somebody's going to be like, oh, I hate working here. I hate living here. I hate yeah. this relationship. I, I don't know. I mean, we can delve in a separate discussion, maybe about the psychology behind the le the leaders that are leading in that way. But yeah. I really just feel like, you know, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. You come from a place of love and everything will connect. Not everybody leads and lives by that philosophy on, or that approach, unfortunately. But, but you know, I do agree with you 100%, obviously, Steve. So yeah. while I'm keeping my eye on the time here, I want to find out from you a couple of things. First of all, what do you have visualizing for yourself now where the direction of this new career, this new project, this new company is going? What do you see yourself doing, broadening out, focusing in? Tell us a little bit about the direction that you hope to be in. Well, what I love about the potential of it, and and partly I'm trying to keep an open mind on where it goes because I, I want to embrace the sort of limitless possibilities of it. Um, but I love the fact that there's the potential 
to continue to make a difference one-on-one with people, to help them figure out who they are and who they're trying to become and help them through life's transitions and help them with their relationships and their job searches and career changes and all of that loss in their lives. That's incredibly meaningful and powerful. That one-to-one connection, boy, when you're in that zone with somebody and you've created that safe space to, to create some trust and be of help to them to find their way forward, it's unbelievable. So I'm really looking forward to that and more of that. At the same time, I do think that we are in the midst of a revolution and it's a revolution. I think there's, there's a couple going on there. They're related. One is in education where I think there's more and more of a realization that education has to be drastically reimagined. Um, Everybody said, oh, the pandemic's going to do that. And then we go back to just the way it was before. But I do think maybe AI is going to do that. But I also think that the mental health crisis in this country, and especially with kids, is going to force a reckoning. And so the idea of like, how do you transform schools and colleges into places where we can take care of people, that we can help them learn how to be healthy and happy and loving adults, happy and loving towards themselves, self-care, and where they act and live less out of fear and anxiety and more out of empowerment and courage and love uh, and and care about each other. That sense, you know, we talk here a lot about Ubuntu, that South African concept that we're all interconnected and we can't be successful or happy without everybody else being happy and successful. Um, And and I think that is related to, I think a revolution, you know, I've referred to as the revolution of love that I do think that the last 20, 30 years, you're seeing more and more people turn to a spirituality that is about the connectedness, the interconnectedness of everything and everyone. And the fact that we do need to get in touch with our authentic selves, that we do need to find ways to love ourselves and love each other better and to together fix the problems that we need to fix and, and create healthier societies. And so I think that's all related. I want to be a part of that conversation and I, and I want to help people figure out how it relates to them and their lives. But I, I really do think this part of it, and you talk about Ted Lasso, if you look at some of the most popular shows uh, just on Netflix, even, you know, in the last couple of years, Ted Lasso, The Good Place, uh, the new version of Queer Eye, there are all these shows that are essentially about love. How do you find and create more love for yourself and your authentic self and through that for the people in your community and build a greater sense of community through that love and authenticity? And that's what I want to be a part of. And, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about where, where that's all going to take all of us. I, I really do do believe that. I will be there with you, my friend, as exhausting as sometimes it can be to champion champion this cause and hopefully to change the mindset of a lot of other people who might be living in that stronghold of fear and coming from a place of not wanting to open up and join love, unfortunately. So best wishes to to those of us in that space. (laughs) Um, Steve, is there anything that we have not touched upon that you might want to share with our audience? I think about your work, uh, what I'm doing, um, your podcast. Um, I I think underlying it all is 
hopefully helping people see that change is constant and like everything's temporary. And that means really cherish the moment, right? The good things in your life, the good people, et cetera. But really be mindful about your choices and that you can create, co-create, manifest a future that will be healthier and happier, have more peace, love, joy in your life. And, and that there are lots of different paths to that. And as you were saying earlier, you know, to be aware of those signposts and those omens that come along that are around us all the time. But I think you're right that a lot of the times we're blind to them. We're, we've, we, we have, you know, tunnel vision because of our fear and anxiety and the pressure to perform and the, the fear about finances and, and, and the competition and all that, the consumerism. But to take a step back and take a deep breath, be mindful in the moment and say, hey, where am I at? What do I need to be grateful for? Gratitude is such a superpower. It brings more good things and energy. It makes you feel better. But also to, to, to think about where do I need to grow? Where do I need to challenge myself better? Where do I need some help and love and support? Because real interdependence and real independence is about knowing when and where you need help and love and support. And we need to be able to ask that. We, in our society, we've lost that path if we ever had it. Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about the work that you do in your podcast is I think empowering people to see that there's a lot of love and help and support out there and a lot of wisdom within and, and among us. And, uh, to share that in a loving way is really powerful. So thank you for doing that. Well, likewise, and thank you for bringing tears of joy to my eyes because I do this because I just like doing it. And I do think about the person out there or many people, hopefully that things might resonate with and yeah. just a small change, right? Like a small change, small, sustainable change can change the course of direction that all of a sudden now you're living in a whole different life. And it's not to say that those of us who followed this, I mean, I've had many decades of dark times and also many times of trying to reinvent and try out different things. But that's what I really like about myself and being able to share this message is that it's so you don't have to commit and hold tight to every single thing that you've said you would be responsible for. You can, we've talked about boundaries and toxic yeah. relationships on these discussions. You know, you can yeah. look at things and make changes at any, at any time. And please know that there is probably, hopefully most likely going to be somebody there to help support and guide you just just ask for it. Just ask yeah. for it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Steve. That's so important. And I, and again, that that point about small changes, you know, it, it's true. It's the pebble in the water, right? And the ripple effects. And, you know, everything starts with one step. All you have to do is make a decision to take one step today in a new direction. And everything else can change after that. It's, it doesn't have to be daunting. It doesn't have to be a mountain, right? It can just be one step today. Absolutely. This has been a very heartwarming conversation and it has been a joy getting to know you, but I do have two final questions that are somewhat related to each other. If you've listened to the podcast, you know what's coming up. So my two, my twofold question is what is on your plate today, Steve, when we're done wrapping up, cause it's now almost, you know, close to evening time here on a Monday, what is on your plate? figuratively what are you working on next or doing next and then literally what do you plan on eating for your next meal so great question so uh 
the first thing is that boy i've got all these changes wrapping up things at school i'm buying a condo on the water south of boston next month and going to the uk with my extended family and then doing the move and then diving in full time to the life coaching and consulting so i'm so excited about the next couple of months it's it's a lot but one step at a time i'm going to take it one or one box at a time i think in terms of the packing in terms of meals, I'm really excited. This is coincidentally this momentous day for me. Uh, um, my oldest daughter is staying with me tonight and my grand dog. And uh, so we're going out to dinner. And so we're going to go to one of our local favorite restaurants, either an Italian place or Mexican. Um, and it just made me think after the conversation here about Mexico and all that, I think maybe we'll go for the Mexican. And um, but it's, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about that 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 I alluded to, you know, my childhood, that we didn't have a lot of the family meals when I was a kid. It was in front of the TV a lot. And so I really cherish that as an adult, like, you know, we do, it's a time where we can force ourselves to sit down and just be present with each other and be present about the food that we're sharing and the choices that we're making and the love that we have with this person, whoever it is that we're sharing a meal with. And I really cherish that. So I'm really looking forward to ending this momentous day with someone that I cherish uh, sharing a good meal. I am honored that I'm a small part in this very lovely celebrated day. Uh, so congratulations on your you. journey. I look forward to crossing paths again at some point. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing so much of your life, your expertise, your input, insight with us today on this episode of Dish with Dina. No, thank you, Dean. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.